I came to a crossroads once in my own life. I was 21, and I had just dropped out of college. And I was living with my parents, not voluntarily. I was working at the Outback Steakhouse late nights, and then sleeping through classes at the local college during the day, and I had no idea what I was supposed to do next with my life. And then one day as I was going through that particular existence, my dad came to me and said, Doug, we need to have a talk. And I don't know about you, but those are the most dreaded words in my entire life. Uh, Because in my family, we didn't have good talks. When my dad and I needed to have a talk, it was never about, we're not serving enough ice cream in this house. And your mother and I have decided that we need to make a change. The talks were never about uh, things to affirm what I was doing or what was going well for me. When we needed to have a talk, it was always bad. And when we had that particular talk, that was the talk where my dad sat down at the table with my mother weeping next to him, and he said, you have to leave. I can't stand having you in my house anymore. You've got to go. And in that moment, I was rejected by the man I admired most in the world. And as we look at the crossroads that Jesus himself faced, we see that he himself struggled with rejection. And I suspect that each and every one of you sitting here tonight have a similar story. That as I share a personal crossroads that was so hard for me to get through and get over, you have one of your own. And maybe you've never gotten over it. Maybe you're being rejected right now. Maybe there's a relationship that is still broken because someone that you value and care about has told you that you are not worth their time. And if that's where you are tonight, I am glad that you are here. Because there is a message of hope for you that our Lord gave us in the very road that he walked. And if you are the kind of person that it lives in fear of rejection, and I have to tell you, that is something that my wife and friends can tell you, that's something that has shaped me in a lot of my life, that I go into every relationship hesitantly because I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting for that moment where I'm a little too honest or they get a little too much of a glimpse of who I really am and the rejection will inevitably come. And so if you can relate to that, if you have lived through that struggle yourselves, then settle in with me tonight. It's going to be honest. It might be something that you haven't grappled with yourselves for a while, but come and walk with me in the footsteps of our Lord and see how he went through rejection himself and see what healing and hope is on the other side. Our message tonight is rejected. It's from the Gospel of Luke. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1030. I encourage you to turn there. But for now, I just want to start with the story. For those of you that were here last week, Pastor Dion shared the story of Jesus' baptism and then temptation in the wilderness, and this is the very next thing that happens. Uh, So starting actually in verse 14, I pick up the story. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. 
Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Now, if you are like me, you know that this is a setup. Also, depending on your Bible, if you look, there's a title for this story, and the title is Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. So already, the hackles are up, the nerves are a little sensitive, and when you hear a one-liner like, he was praised by everyone, you know that this story is not going to end well. In verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now this is where you know they're going to reject him. That's some pretty bold stuff. But actually, if we keep reading, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So far, so good. But we know the rejection is coming at some point. Then Jesus said, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet of Elisha, of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. And when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Which is the rejection, I don't know, that I was waiting for happen, to happen, but I don't know about you, I'm kind of surprised it came after that. That doesn't seem all that bad to me. That doesn't seem offensive. They liked him when he said he was going to fulfill the scriptures, which seemed pretty audacious. But in this moment, when he said, when he compared himself to Elijah and Elisha, now they're furious. And jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of our Lord. If you look behind me, there's a picture of Nazareth. We actually know where this happened. This is a picture from, uh, this one, is a picture from the top of the cliff at Nazareth. And if you look out, you can see that Galilee was a very hilly country. You're quite high up. And notice this tree, this very oddly shaped tree, kind of in the middle of of nowhere on this plateau. And now go to the other picture for me. And this is the view from the bottom. There's the tree. This is what they were hoping to shove him down to 
pay him back for this awful thing that he had said, to reject their native son when he came back to them. This is a hard story for me to read. It's one thing to know that we as people are rejected. It's another to to look at the story of our Savior and to see how he was treated by his own family, his own people. And also to know that this was not the first time he was rejected, nor would it be the last. And so tonight what I'd like to explore with you is what does it look like and mean to be rejected? How are we to respond when we ourselves are in this position of being rejected by those who should love us most and should hold us the most dear. And as I was pondering this, I realized that I see three ways that I at least respond to rejection and that I have a feeling are common to you as well. And I wanted to work through those three things. And so the first response uh, I think that we have to rejection is to aim low. Because if we don't challenge, if we don't seek high things, then rejection isn't going to happen because we played it safe. On yet another one of my infamous talks with my father, he gave me the ultimatum as a 16-year-old that I needed to get a job to prove that there was some worth in, uh, in me. And so I went out and I found the absolute first job that I knew I could get, a host at Denny's restaurant. Because here was the thing, I knew that Denny's had never turned down an applicant in their history. And whatever my dad might think of me, they would hire me. And in fact, they gave me an interview on the spot, and when I could subtract change from a dollar, I was hired on the spot. And that was my summer job that year. And it was fine, but it was me trying to react to my dad's rejection by being affirmed at something that I knew would not reject me. I didn't try for the jobs that my classmates tried for, uh, because that would involve the chance that they might say no. But I knew that Denny's would say yes. I aimed low to protect myself from rejection. And I think we see that in the broader world. There was a movie that uh, captured the imagination when I was in high school called Billy Madison, uh, which some of you may know of, but the premise is that a rich young man whose father had basically bribed his teachers all through school was given the opportunity to go back, starting with kindergarten, all the way up through the grades, and attempt to pass each grade of school. And I think that that movie was so popular because deep inside, all of us would love to be in that position of doing school in a way that we aren't facing rejection. I don't know about you, but I think if I were to go back, I would kill it at kindergarten. (laughs) Color between the lines, don't eat paste, you're good. There'd be no way to be rejected. And so by aiming low, we insulate ourselves from any chance of failure, and, and it's one way that we try to avoid the rejection that plagues us in our lives. The second thing I've noticed in my own life uh, is um, we anticipate the rejection, and so we reject first. I, uh, I prided myself that for all my relationships growing up, my romantic relationships, that I was always the dumper and not the dumpy. Because you don't want to be the dumpy. That person's sad and, and pathetic. But the dumper, they, they've got their act together. They knew what they wanted, and it wasn't that other person. Uh, and I had a very serious girlfriend my senior year of high school, and, um, and I broke up with her, and, and it made me feel a little better. But 
as I reflected on it, it was because I had sensed that she didn't have the same strength of feeling for me as I had for her. I saw that she was slowly pulling back, distancing herself from me. And so rather than wait for the inevitable rejection, I just kind of ripped the band-aid off and I dumped her first. I rejected her so that she wouldn't reject me. And again, I think this is a common experience because one of my favorite songs at the time was one that many people have liked uh, by a group called Simon and Garfunkel. Um, The song is called I Am a Rock. I am an island because a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Even the successful people, famous musicians, recognize that it was easier to be a rock and to reject those around you rather than let them in and have a chance to cause you pain yourself. And then the third thing that I've found in my own reflection as a response to rejection is this desire to get them back. That when we've been rejected, we want to show them. We want to prove to them that they were wrong and make them regret what they did to us. Uh, I was in publishing for a while. I worked for one company for six years. And for six years, they had layoffs every single year. It's not a good time to be in publishing. And the sixth year was the year that I got my name in the slip. And as I left that day, my thought was, I'm going to get the most amazing new job so that these people that thought my services were no longer needed will regret the day that they got rid of me. And as I went through the interview process and looked for other things, my number one criterion was not pay or how quickly I could start. My number one criterion was, how will this look to those managers back at that company when they see that this is my new job? I wanted to get them back so bad. And yet I saw the problem with this by watching one of my own childhood heroes. Many of you know Michael Jordan, uh, probably still, even in this day of LeBron and Stefan, probably still the greatest basketball player of all time. And what you may not know is that he was actually cut from his high school varsity team as a sophomore. And he played the rest of his high school career and into his college and professional life with a chip on his shoulder. That he was going to prove to them that just because they rejected him that one time, he was going to rub their faces in it for the rest of their lives. And for a long time, I admired that about him. I thought, oh, that chip on his shoulder, it just made him stronger. It made him more successful. He channeled that rejection into something great. And then I saw his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. It was a few years ago. I don't know how many of you witnessed it. But this man who everyone around him agreed was the pinnacle of his profession, was the greatest that had ever been. And he spent his acceptance speech rubbing it in the face of everyone who had ever put him down, dismissed him, or told him he couldn't do it. And it broke my heart to see a 50-year-old man who by all measures is the greatest, and yet even his success is tainted by the fact that he was rejected by some people along the way. And in this moment of of greatest accomplishment, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, he has no words of joy 
of gratitude, of praise for what got him there, but that he is still settling old grudges for everyone that ever rejected him growing up. And I looked at that and said, that can't be me. I can't let bitterness of rejection taint my life forever. These cannot be the ways that we live in light of rejection. But I don't know about you, they're the temptations for me each and every day because they're easier than rejection. And so as I look at today's story, as I watch our Lord face a crossroads and see how he handled rejection, I held my own patterns and practices up to his scope. And I said, if this is how I do it and it's caused me pain and hardship and has left me bittered and weakened from rejection, what did our Lord do instead? And so we go back to the story. And so in this paradigm, let's look at how the divine response to rejection plays out differently. See, where I aim low, I see in this story our Lord aiming high. In case you didn't understand it, I didn't. I had to look through a lot of books to figure out why his town people got so upset at him. Because he said this beautiful thing. He said, I'm going to bring good news to the poor. I'm going to release the captives, give the blind sight, set free the oppressed. The time of the Lord's favor has come. This should be a good thing. Why are they rejecting him for this? But here's the problem. When he says that you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. You see, the expression at the time meant, if you're a doctor, make sure you're spending your effort and time on your family and those around you. And so when the hometown boy, who's earned all this praise and acclamation throughout the region, comes back to town, they're not happy for him. They're saying, what are we getting out of this? If we have this guy who's suddenly doing miracles, let's see what miracles you have for us. How are you going to bless us? And when he proclaimed this message of hope, the thing that was offensive about it was not that it was hopeful, it was that it was for everyone. They didn't care about everyone. See, the Jews at that time were God's chosen people. And God, if he was going to send anybody, was going to be for their sake and their benefit. And so when Jesus proclaims this message of hope and release, that he's going to set people free from bondage, they're fine with that as long as it's just them. But he was aiming bigger than that. Jesus wanted more than that. He wasn't there to save one small town of Nazareth. He was there to release the whole world. He aimed high in the face of of rejection. He didn't settle for less. He didn't lower his sights. He stayed true to the fullness of what he was here to do, to save and release everyone. The second thing I saw, that instead of rejecting first, Jesus just accepted the rejection. See, here's the thing. He told them up front, while they were still praising him and marveling at him, he said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He knew before anything happened that he was going to be rejected. And in fact, they fulfilled his prophecy at the end of this story. And so as I look at this, I think, why go there? Jesus, if you know you're going to go back to your hometown, to the people who were with you growing up, the people that you value and love and esteem the most, the people who have seen you at your worst and best, 
If you know they're going to reject you, skip that town. But he didn't. He accepted the rejection, knowing that it was going to come his way. He didn't reject them first and spare himself that hurt. He went there and received whatever they would give him. Either way. And then the third thing is that when we are tempted for revenge, we want to get them back. Instead, Jesus used rejection as an opportunity to get us back, to get his people back. You see, he knew it was going to happen. He went there anyway. And when it did happen, he didn't say, I'm going to get my own. I'll show you someday when I'm the king of the world, when I'm the universally acknowledged savior. He didn't say that. Instead, he used his rejection as a way to be a plan, a part of his plan for salvation. And that wasn't the first time that this has happened or that's how God has worked. We see this story, but if we look at the broader context of the Bible, it's been happening since the dawn of time. The very first two people that God created to love him and be in a loving relationship with him rejected him in the garden. And then when he worked miracles and built up his chosen people, Israel, and he met with them on the Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai in Exodus and gave them his co- contract and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He said in that moment, you're stubborn, you're going to reject me and I'm going to be your God anyway. And then in this story, Jesus is rejected by his hometown. A little time later, he's going to be rejected by his very disciples and apostles, the people who loved him and followed him for years. He's going to give a teaching that's too hard, and they're going to walk away. And then ultimately, he's going to go to the cross, where his people are given a chance to rescue him. And instead of rescuing him, they choose the murderer and say, give us that guy, crucify Jesus. And they rejected him to the cross itself. And as we ask ourselves, why? Why would a divine, omnipotent, all-powerful God submit himself to this? Why would rejection be a crucial part of his plan for us? And it's one of the questions I'm going to ask God when I get there to meet him face to face. But in the meantime, he gives us at least a clue. And it comes from the prophet Isaiah. As you saw in the story, Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah about releasing the captives, setting people free. And he was quoting from a passage about the suffering servant, which is most clearly laid out in Isaiah chapter 53. And so what I'd like to ask you to do with me tonight is just to look up at the screen for a little bit. I'm going to read it. It's a little long, but it's Isaiah, who lived thousands of years before Jesus walked the earth, but with the revelation from God telling him in advance what was going to happen, Isaiah said these words about God's anointed servant. He said, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised 
and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here's the truth that God reveals to us in this passage and in Jesus' very life. That on the other side of rejection, if we can get through and come out the other side loving others, there is power. We think that the one who rejects has the power. The one who severs the relationship, the one who tells you that you were not good enough, we think the power lies in their hands. But in fact, the moment they do that, they're powerless. They've severed the relationship. They've ended any control they have over you. And in that moment, the rejected one has the power to love and overcome that hatred or indifference. When Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the streets and they blasted fire hoses at him and his protesters, the power looked like it was in the hands of those with the hoses, but it was in the hands of those who received that persecution and loved anyway. When the girl who is abandoned at birth hunts down her birth parents and forgives them and says, you abandoned me, but I still love you, she has the power. And when our God reaches out to us and we reject him, and we weren't there 2,000 years ago, but if we had been, we almost certainly would have been in the crowd. And we would have been the ones saying, this is too far out for us. It doesn't make sense. And we would have rejected him as well. And when God in that moment comes through and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, his love wins. And when we ourselves who face a life that is filled with uncertainty, brokenness, and the cruelty of others. When we know that we have a God who went through the rejection for our sake and came out the other side to redeem it in love and to release and set free those who had rejected him, we don't have to live in fear of rejection ourselves anymore. We can say, you person might condemn me, you might reject me, you might not love me, but God does. And he went through it for me, for you, for all of us. 
And his rejection and suffering makes our rejection meaningful. And it's what makes us loved in spite of it. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you did not spare your own son anything, but submitted him to the worst that could be done to him. That he was rejected by the very people who should have loved him. And Lord, we thank you that you turned that around and that on the far side, you turned that rejection into the power to release people from bondage, to set them free from whatever might plague them. And Lord, we ask that you would do the same for each of us here tonight, that you would release us from whatever rejection has tainted and embittered our lives because we find acceptance and wholeness in you. Amen.